welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in experts and authors to help writers of all genres incorporate more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals into their stories. For this episode, New York Times bestselling author Joel C. Rosenberg steps into the interrogation room to get his story straight about his writing and craft. Joel is a New York Times bestselling author of 16 novels and five nonfiction books with nearly 5 million copies in print. His career as a political thriller writer was born out of his filmmaking studies at Syracuse University, and he also studied at Tel Aviv University during his junior year. After graduating from Syracuse, he moved to Washington, D.C. and worked for a range of U.S. and Israeli leaders in nonprofit organizations, serving as a political analyst and communication strategist. The grandson of Orthodox Jews who escaped out of Tsarist Russia in the early 1900s, Rosenberg comes from a Jewish background on his father's side and a Gentile background on his mother's side. Rosenberg is the founder and chairman of the Joshua Fund, a nonprofit educational and humanitarian relief organization, as well as the founder and editor-in-chief of All Israel News and All Arab News. His latest release is entitled The Beirut Protocol, and it's the next installment in his Marcus Riker series. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Joel. I am so grateful for your time and for you uh, for you being here today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, great to be with you from Jerusalem. Um, supposed to be in the States for this uh, uh, book tour for the Beirut Protocol, but our airport is closed. Oh, no. Um, and uh, the COVID situation has hit pretty hard here. And it's just beginning to open now, but, but um, I literally can't fly back to the States. So we're doing everything virtual. That I was when this whole thing got got set up i was expecting you to, to be back in the in the east coast what time is it there right now it's not so bad as, as we record this it's uh, five in the afternoon but i've i've had to go nocturnal uh <laughs> like i'm basically sleeping through the day because i'm doing interviews from <laughs> late afternoon which is you know of course mm-hmm. morning u.s time mm-hmm. all through the night uh, last night i went to bed at i think six in the morning so uh, or this that was this morning so anyway uh it's it's fine it's not you know, ideal, but what about COVID is? Right. Yeah. It's uh, why, why not go ahead and change up that last thing in life that might've felt normal. Yeah. Now, for readers who don't have an advanced copy of the Beirut protocol, what do you want them to know about this book? Well, this political thriller, uh, um, the Beirut protocol is uh, focused on, on a character named Marcus Riker. Riker is uh, a decorated uh, combat veteran Marine uh, with multiple tours of duty in Afghanistan in, and in Iraq. We see that in previous books. Um, he ends up uh, working for the United States Secret Service, rises to the elite presidential protective detail protecting the United States, the vice president and the senior leadership at the White House and the US government. And, uh, but a tragedy in his life forces him to leave government service. Uh, again, these are in previous books, but, uh, but he eventually is, is drafted back in pretty much against his will uh, to end up working for the, uh, for the Central Intelligence Agency. And so as this novel begins, the fourth in the series with Marcus Riker, in the Beirut Protocol, Marcus is on the Israeli-Lebanon border. Why? Because the United States is trying to finalize the mother of all peace deals, mm-hmm. uh, a peace deal uh, between the Saudi government and the state of Israel. That has not yet happened in real life, but it's happening in my novels. Um, but uh, the, the, the Americans are very concerned that Iran 
the, the regime in Tehran and its terrorist proxy forces in Lebanon and other places uh, in the world uh, are going to try to do something to blow up the peace process, uh, determined not to allow the Saudis and the Israelis to make peace. And so the Secretary of State wants to come in and get a briefing on the threat posed by Iran in the form of its terror proxy force known as Hezbollah, the terror force that, that essentially occupies uh, the state of Lebanon. Uh, in real life, Hezbollah has 150,000 missiles, 150,000 missiles mm. aimed at Israel. They're all built in, in Iran. They're all funded by Iran. And this, and, and essentially, Lebanon has become a forward operating base for Iran against Israel. And so the Secretary of State's coming, this is all chapter one, so I'm not giving it away, I'm just setting it up. <laughs> right. The, the, uh, the Secretary of State is coming, she wants a briefing on the threat posed by Iran slash Hezbollah, uh, and, and she wants to see it for herself, and she wants a briefing up there. So, so Marcus Riker and his team of American and Israeli security operatives they're doing an advanced trip just to make sure the route along the border is, is secure and, that, and they're prepared for everything. But a terror attack um, against this convoy um, uh, erupts in a massive firefight. Mm -hmm. uh, by the end of that first chapter, Marcus and two of his colleagues, one American, one Israeli, are captured, pulled into a terror tunnel that the IDF didn't know was there, pulled deep underground and deep behind enemy lines. And while Marcus and his team are now captured and, and being tortured, above ground, a massive missile war, the third Lebanon war is erupting and it's a, a whole new war in the Middle East, the last thing anybody wants or needs. And that's the setup. That's how the Beirut Protocol begins. Yeah, in, in reading this book, I absolutely love techno thrillers. And this uh, this book and your writing style is really incredible as a reader. And I would highly recommend anyone who wants to write in this genre, in this space, pick up the Beirut Protocol and tear this thing apart as a textbook about how to do this thing right. Is it, it This thing reads to me as it belongs in the upper echelons of this genre with the Clancy's and the Mark Greenies and all of those other uh, writers who've become household names. And I really hope that everyone is, is putting you in that same category very soon. And this is incredible. Well, I appreciate it. And, uh, and I, I know Mark Greeny will appreciate it. He's fairly new to the genre, but it's done incredibly well. Look, um, yeah, I, I'm up against some really fierce and, and, and sharp competitors mm -hmm. in this space. Um, I think of my novel as probably a little less techno thriller as political thriller, but it is still the same sort of, uh, you know, so Clancy was writing techno thrillers, military thrillers, his mm -hmm. fascination and his expertise though he had no formal military training whatsoever. Uh, he was an insurance salesman yes. in Maryland, yes. but, but, but he, he, he immersed himself in the details, the, the nitty gritty, as it were, mm -hmm. of, of, of naval technology and, and, and military technology overall. My, my, I'm, I'm doing less of that, though I think the Clancy parallel is, is, is apt and probably a little less with Mark because Mark again is is more of a military focus. The military certainly plays a big role 
in my novels, but they're political thrillers. And, and by that, I mean geopolitical thrillers. Uh, my background and training was working, well, for a series of U.S. and Israeli leaders, including, uh, at the time, the former prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. Of course, mm -hmm. he's prime minister now and uh, facing a tough re-election campaign. Yes. But I'm, I'm trying to look at what the, as, at sort of how these big power players in the Middle East, in Russia, North Korea, China, uh, of course, the United States, how do they all interact? And, and, and how can the forces of evil suddenly blindside mm -hmm. world and regional leaders when they least expect it? Um, and so I'm, it, it's a personal story, Marcus. You know, you, we, we really see him and his team uh, up close and personal in the worst case scenario for them being captured by a bloodthirsty enemy. Mm -hmm. But we're also, I'm sort of also taking you to the white house situation room and the prime minister's war room in Israel and the palace of the Supreme leader of Iran and the military headquarters of Hezbollah in Beirut. And I'm, and I'm moving back and forth. It's part spy novel. It's part military thriller. Mm -hmm. It's certainly a political thriller at its core. And, um, Look, we've sold five million copies of these books over the years. Um, I'm amazed. You know, when you, you write your first thriller or first novel, you just want your mother to be able to find the book in a bookstore within a hundred miles of her house, right? You can't, you can't. I mean, you can always aspire to the New York Times, USA yes. Today, Publishers Weekly list. That's all wonderful. But can your mother find it? Can your mm -hmm. father find it? Like that's. But so that's was that was my original goal. Um, but it's exciting to see people. Mm -hmm all over the United States and Canada and with two dozen translations around the world, uh, people all over the world are reading these books. That's fun for me. And for your background, as you, as you mentioned, you've worked in, uh, in Washington, DC, you've uh, worked extensively and studied extensively in uh, Israel and Tel Aviv. And you have a lot of personal background that brings to bear from the political side and the geopolitical side, as you said, I wonder how you go about your research and making up for any lack you have on the the espionage, the the, uh, the, the making Marcus Riker authentic right. to people who have that kind of background. Yes, that is one of the great challenges. We you know we tell young people who want to write you know uh, write what you know, but mm -hmm. very few of us have killed somebody. Yes, uh, fewer. You know, and very few people, you know, have, have been in uh, special forces or in the CIA or something. So, so you have to do research and you have to figure out a way with your own sensibilities, your own skill sets, your own, um, you know, your own instincts to make the novels work without alienating people who do know these things. And if you write them wrong, you know, somebody, if you, you know, if, you, in other words, if I pretend to be a techno thriller writer, then people in special forces and stuff are going to freak out. They're going to be upset because I, I can't do something the same as, you know, a, you know, a friend of mine is a former Delta force commander, right? Mm -hmm. Now I ask him for advice. I get, but if I try to get too much in that world, since it's not, my world. If I try to get too technical, I'll get the details wrong. And then I will alienate people who are reading it. But 
I think the vindication that as a political thriller writer, I'm getting it right, mm -hmm. is the fact that American leaders at the highest levels and, and Israeli and Arab leaders at the highest levels are reading the books. So um, as an example, so, so I'm, as they have read the books and have invited me to spend time with them, these types of leaders, including three former directors of the Central Intelligence Agency, I get to spend time with them and ask them what worries you, what, what, what keeps you up at night? What are the plots that you pray never happen? But what if I wrote about it as a novel and as a war game to imagine, God forbid, what if this happened? What type of things should I write about? And I sit with leaders and I ask them that. And they, over time, they have become incredibly helpful. And then with, you know, more minor details and, and nuances as well. So that's the way I do the research. I, I had the benefit of working for a once and former prime minister of Israel, you know, as I mentioned at the, at the time when I first got started. And I should probably say, actually, if, if we have a moment, how working for Netanyahu led to my first novel, which became a, a, a monster bestseller. Absolutely. Okay, so so to be clear and to be honest, I am a failed political consultant. Okay, yeah, I, I worked for a bunch of people. They all lost. Okay, uh, nobody ever benefited, uh, moved forward politically because I was involved in their lives and their campaigns. So let's just let's just be clear. So, uh, but while I was not helpful to any of them, <laughs> um, they were incredibly helpful to me. I learned a lot, and. Not everybody who writes political thrillers has ever worked in politics in Washington or, or elsewhere. And so that was a benefit. I had the culture. I, I'd sort of been, you know, steeped in it. I'd been sort of, uh, you know, I, I was a cucumber that had become a pickle by soaking in the pickle juices, uh, you know, of, uh, of Washington, for better or for worse. But at least for a political thriller, um, I understood the dynamics of, of how Washington works and how does how leaders make decisions and, and et cetera. So I worked for Netanyahu. Um, I was on his comeback campaign team in the year 2000. He had, Netanyahu had been prime minister of Israel from 1996 to 99. He lost his reelection and he'd, he'd left uh, the parliament and had just taken a break. Now he wanted to come back. And I got hired with a small group of Americans, uh, political and communications and media consultants, to complement his Israeli consultants. Well, long story short, uh, events unfolded in such a way that he was sort of checkmated from even running in the early 2001 race that he had intended. So suddenly I was out of work mm -hmm. uh, again. <laughs> it was my I had a consulting company. That way I... I could tell people, you know, when they asked me what I do, I'd say I'm the president of a company, mm -hmm. not that I'm unemployed. I just didn't have any clients. I might not say that to a person. But uh, anyway, I started thinking ever since I was eight years old, I wanted to write stories, either novels or, or movies. So I thought, this is a moment I have. I have some money in the bank. My wife and kids are, are good. I have a little bit of time. Maybe this is a moment to try my hand at, at writing a political thriller. So what was I going to write about? Well, Netanyahu had been 
warning for years, in, 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 whenever he came to the United States, he was warning that the threat that Israel faces from terrorists known as radical Islamists uh, is a very, very small subset of all of Islam. We're not talking about all of Islam being a threat, but, but mm-hmm. radical, violent, extremist Islamists, those trying to use the religion to accomplish and, and use violence to accomplish political objectives, this is a, a problem in our part of the world over here. And, uh, and Netanyahu is warning, you know, the type of threats that we face in Israel, they, these threats are coming to the United States if American leaders don't understand that in the theology and the political ideology of radical Islamism, Israel is only the little Satan mm-hmm. in their view, right? Mm-hmm. We're not, Israel is not the main target. The United States is the great Satan and American leaders better wake up and smell the Starbucks as it were. He didn't, wasn't quite as colorful (laughs) as that, but um, because if they don't understand this threat, they're going to get blindsided by it. Okay. And, you know, and, and he even wrote in a book of his, uh, a place among the nations uh, in the nineties, he said, you know, he, he reminded Americans that uh, these radical Islamist terrorists had already attacked the world trade center in 1993, right, with the big mm-hmm. truck bomb, and they were going to try it again. Now, I decided to write a thriller, and I thought, let's imagine that something like that really happens. Now, as it as it happens, I, I will be honest that I did not really take that sp- specific warning that Netanyahu had made about the World Trade Center. I hadn't made that the cornerstone of the book. Looking back, maybe I should have, although I, I sort of am glad that I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't make New York and Washington the targets. But at the first page of my first thriller, The Last Jihad, I put you inside the cockpit of a jet plane that's been hijacked by radical Islamist terrorists, and it's coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city. Happens to be Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, but that attack sets into motion a fictional American president in the book deciding to declare war, not only on those terrorist cells in the Middle East, but to remove the number one funder and supplier and encourager of terrorism in the region, remove him from power. Mm -hmm. And that was Saddam Hussein. Mm -hmm. Now, set aside your political views uh, of what you thought that was the right war, the wrong war. Just imagine yourself writing a novel starting in January of 2001, that starts with a kamikaze attack against mm-hmm. an American city and leads to a war to remove Saddam Hussein from power. It would be, it would be sort of like if you were a novelist or a, an aspiring novelist in January of 1941 that writes about the Imperial Japanese hitting Midway or Guam or you know maybe Pearl Harbor. Right, yeah. And that setting into motion a global war in which the United States drops not one, but two atomic weapons on the Japanese to end the war. And then December 7th, 1941 comes and you're finishing the novel that day. That's the story effectively of what happened with me. No one knew who I was. I had never written a novel. I was a behind the scenes political guy. And Mm -hmm. suddenly The Last Jihad became number one on Amazon, uh, spent 11 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, I did 160 radio, television, and print interviews in less than 60 days. Wow. And, uh, and, and 
this was all happening bef- after 9-11, but just as the country was debating, should we go to war in Iraq or not? And that set into motion a, a career, mm-hmm. but also a sense within the media. How come this guy seems to be predicting what's, you know, tomorrow's headlines? Yes. And, uh, so that became, uh, that became my story. Suddenly I, suddenly I was a novelist. Now, in, in creating that first story in, in this Riker series, I am really intrigued by Marcus Riker and your choice of, of his background. I had a little bit of experience working with uh, Department of State um, in my cop life when I was working narcotics. Turned out that we had a suspect in common that I was looking at a guy for for international drug trafficking, and it was the same guy they were looking at for significant passport fraud. And what kind of guy needs to be engaged in both of those activities, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I really enjoyed that you made him a... And an agent with the diplomatic security service with Department of State, rather than just the, the typical, you know, CIA, OGA um, agent. And I, I wonder how, how deliberate all that was. Sure. Well, so let me take one step back and simply to say that the, the, the commercially, I may have made a mistake in my career. It, you know, admittedly, selling copy is wonderful. Uh, I'm very happy about that. But you know, uh, so, several of my competitors have sold multiples of that. And what they have done, and, and what's the classic way of being a thriller writer, is that you create one franchise character uh, that, and, and, and that's whom you invest in for the rest of your career, right? If you're Ian Fleming, it's James Bond, right? Um, if, you're, uh, if you're Vince Flynn back in the day, God bless him, mm-hmm. um, it was Mitch Rapp, right? And, and and if you're, you know, Robert Ludlum, although he wrote many different things, he's known for Jason Bourne. Mm-hmm. So these are called franchise characters. They, you, you, Lee Child, right? He writes Jack Reacher. That's mm-hmm. what we know him for. Now, I haven't done that. Um, I, but I don't regret it because I've had a series of other series that I wanted to write, other stories I wanted to tell. And I've been very fortunate to be able to do that and, and be commercially, you know, successful at it. Uh, but... I decided to create this new character on the theory that I might invest the rest of my career in Marcus Riker. So I, I had to figure out, well, what am I going to do that it, it create a character that I like, that actually that I love, and yet that's different from everybody else in the marketplace. So I had, so I sat down with a legal pad several years ago, a uh, yellow legal pad, and I just wanted to sketch out a few notes. Who is Marcus Riker? Usually I would start my novel series based on the what if premise, mm-hmm. the geopolitical premise. What if this bad thing happened in the world? What would happen? This time I, I said, no, no, no. This time I'm going to focus entirely on the character first, get that figured out. And who's his, his universe of friends and, and, and allies and enemies. And then I'll figure out what situations to place him in. So with Marcus, I decided I only knew two things. One I wrote down that I wanted him to be a former Secret Service agent. What I mean by that is I wanted him to, to have served in the Marines. So he had combat experience. He was, he was wounded in combat. He was decorated for valor in combat. But he had risen to the most elite unit 
of American, in my view, federal law enforcement, which is the United States Secret Service. And not just the Secret Service, but at the at the top of the top of the food chain on the presidential protective detail. I wanted him to have all those skill sets, but I didn't want because, because I didn't want him to be an assassin. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, because Jason Bourne is an assassin, right? Mm-hmm. Mitch Rapp is an assassin. You know, Brad Thor's main character, assassin, mm-hmm. right? And so that's being done and done well. I didn't want to do that. So I wanted him by personality and by training i wanted marcus to be a protector his mm-hmm. his, his obje- he can kill anybody in an instant and he's the best of the best at it but he's not trying to kill people he's trying to protect his nation its leaders its currency its its reputation you know that type of thing mm-hmm. but i wanted him to be former okay why because i wanted him to have a tragedy in his life and therefore the the second point on the on the pad was i wanted him to be a widower this is my worst case scenario. I've been married to my wife for 30, coming up on 31 years. My worst case scenario is not having her. If something happened and, and I was left alone without her and I tried to imagine, I, I wanted this guy to be, I, I wanted Marcus to be incredibly gifted and skilled at what he does and sharp. I mean, he, this guy is smart, he's a strategist, but I wanted him to be wounded, not just in battle. But in life, I wanted him to have a hole, uh, and and so, in the first book, I'm not giving much away, but just so people know, um, Marcus's wife and his only child, a son, are murdered in a in a convenience robbery gone bad that Marcus is not there for. Mm. He's on Air Force One flying back from a from a trip with the president, and he's not there. And and so, Marcus is incredibly good at what he does. But, but he's haunted by this, this, this reality that he spent his entire life protecting his country and he couldn't protect the two people closest to him in his life. Mm-hmm. And that's how I started. Now, he then gets, you know, eventually he gets, as I said, he gets drafted back into government service and he actually, technically he does work for the CIA, but nobody knows it. He ostensibly works for the diplomatic security service. And again, that's just not something that I see in thrillers. It's, it's sort of an, un, you know, it's, it's the secret service of the state department um, guarding uh, secretaries of state and diplomats and so forth. So that combo platter, he, he, he has this role. It's not quite like being in the secret service, but sort of, but, but actually he works for the CIA. He's not what he seems. Those were the elements of a character that for me, I thought, that gives me a lot of traction. Uh, this will give me a lot of uh, a lot to run with, let's say. And mm-hmm. um, so now we're in book four mm-hmm. of the Marcus Riker series. If if you have uh, uh, time, I've got uh, two questions that I wanted to get to. First, I sure. pose a hypothetical to folks who come on the show to kind of close things out, and then I also wanted to ask you about the Joshua Fund. Sure, absolutely. Okay. Now, I, I, uh, I really enjoy asking uh, hypotheticals of folks who come on the show, Joel, and I wonder uh, if you're willing to play along. Um, I'd like to put you in a little bit of a circumstance that you've uh, put Marcus Riker in to open this book, and God forbid it should come to pass, but if you were captured by Hezbollah terrorists, dragged through tunnels into Lebanon, 
and you have a team, you can pick the team who's coming to save you, but it can't be anyone you write. What fictional characters would you make your rescue team? F fictional characters from other people's novels? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, that's a good question. I've never been asked a question like that. So that's, uh, that's fun. Um, uh, that's a good question. Um, well, I wouldn't mind having Mitch Rapp come to uh, take out the bad guys. Um, Vince Flynn, I, I love the character of Mitch Rapp. I don't, you know, he, he, he's a very different sensibility than me, but, but I, I also loved Vince Flynn. He, Vince, uh, he endorsed my first novel, The Last Jihad. Um, he was a few steps ahead of me. He was really gaining traction. Um, didn't have to take time to read the, the manuscript, much less mm -hmm. endorse it, but it was super helpful to me and it was very, very kind, very gracious. And um, eventually we got to uh, got to know each other. We, we met at a, at a party for some Washington political folks. Uh, and, um, and he's just a, just a great guy and just such a sad story mm -hmm. of uh, him dying of cancer way too young. And he was, you know, somebody wasn't in politics. Uh, he was, uh, he was, he was in sales in Minneapolis mm -hmm. and originally uh, sold his first book, uh, you know, out of the back of the trunk of his car, but uh, he was really well done, but he created a really interesting character in Mitch Rapp and one connection between Mitch Rapp and me. So I'll, I'll just, this helps me answer your question. Mm -hmm. And that is in, in the Mitch Rapp series, particularly the book, American Assassin, mm -hmm. Vince writes the backstory of, of, um, of Mitch Rapp. And, and, and Mitch Rapp's backstory is that he had a girlfriend that went to Syracuse University and was studying abroad in London in the fall of 1988. And, and Mitch's girlfriend, uh, and I think maybe fiance, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on that at the moment, mm -hmm. but anyway, gets on a Pan Am flight mm -hmm. to fly back to the United States for Christmas. And that's Pan Am flight 103. And it's blown up by Libyan terrorists over Lockerbie, Scotland. And, and Mitch as a student is traumatized by the death of his girlfriend. And this sets into motion his desire to join the CIA and become a, uh, an assassin mm -hmm. of evil, bad people, you bad guys, right? That's, that's Mitch Rapp's backstory. Now, uh, you remember uh, Paul Harvey, the radio host, used to say, now for the rest of the story. Yep, loved him. My wife and I met at Syracuse University as undergraduates. Wow. My wife came to Syracuse to be in the drama program. And had she continued in the drama program, she would have studied in London in the fall of 1988 and almost certainly would have been on that Pan Am flight um, and blown up over Lockerbie, Scotland. As it happened, she decided to, to shift majors to English literature with a focus on creative writing. And that single decision and the grace of God uh, caused her not to study in London that fall. And, um, but we lost friends on that flight. Wow. And while it didn't motivate me to go into work for the CIA, because that's not my skill sets, 
it did cause me to write novels about terrorism. And Vince and I, Vince had not written that book and given that backstory when I knew him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until years later, and he didn't know my story either at the, in that level of detail. Wow. But uh, that would be another reason that I would believe that 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 Mitch Rapp would have the motive <laughs> yes. and the skill set to come try to help me and rescue me and my friends uh, deep in the heart of Lebanon. I also wanted to ask you about the, the Joshua Fund. I am a, a huge proponent of philanthropy and, and of folks who are making the world around them better. And I'd, I'd love for readers to know about what you and the Joshua Fund are doing. Sure. Well, when my first novel was was published, uh, The Last Jihad, in, in the fall of 2002, suddenly, you know, again, I was becoming a best-selling writer. I was speaking. I was write, writing. I was, I was on me- media. And I was dealing with issues about war and terror and trauma in the Middle East. Now, while I'm Jewish on my father's side, uh, Gentile on my mom's side, by faith, my family and I are all evangelical Christians. Mm-hmm. So part of me was thinking, you know, I, I don't want to just write about these things. There are, are people really suffering from war and terror in the Middle East. And my wife and I were asking ourselves, what, what can we do beyond just educating people? Yes, educating people about what's going on in the Middle East. That's, that's what I do in, in fiction and in nonfiction and in interviews. But what, what more can we do, right? And, and um, the Bible speaks so much, both in the Old and New Testaments, about caring for the poor, caring for widows and orphans and, mm-hmm. you know, having that compassion that God has for people in a very broken world. And, and I was starting to get asked by people also, what can we do to make a difference? And so uh, in my first novel, The Last Jihad, the main character is a guy named John Bennett. John is, a, is the chief investment strategist for a global hedge fund called, wait for it, the Joshua Fund. So I thought, let's just rip the, the name right out of the pages of the first book mm-hmm. and let's create a, a fund. I'll, you know, my wife and I will put money in, but we'll also accept funds, uh, nonprofit uh, tax deductible dollars from people all over the country, all over the world, if they want to, to help us care for Holocaust survivors, Iraqi and Syrian refugees, um, you know, strengthen uh, the churches I- I- that are beleaguered in this part of the world and so forth. Um, we care for Jews, we care for Muslims, we care for Christians. It doesn't matter what faith you have, but those who are doing the work, those who work for the Josh Fund, they're evangelicals. We are evangelicals. So over the t- since 2006, when we started, um, uh, the Josh Fund has is, is invested more than $50 million wow. in this type of work. And that is, I got to tell you, more than writing, that has been such a joy. I, I honestly, I would quit writing and just do that because I, because my wife and I just love it so much. We, we, we love helping people. And, and yet really it's the writing and the speaking that, 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 that sort of sets the stage for the Joshua Fund to work. And so while we've got a great team and, 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 and they do great work on the day-to-day level, um, I'm still raising the funds for it and, and, and helping people understand how it sort of fits into things. Thank you for asking about it. Uh, people can certainly learn more at joshuafund.com or you just come to my website, joelrosenberg.com and there's a link right at the top on the, band, uh, on the, you know, the, 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 the toolbar there and uh, you can click right to it. 
No, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all this with us. Um, and I, I really want to help try to promote things like the Joshua Fund and the folks who are, who are out around the world truly doing God's work. And I'm, I'm so grateful to you, sir. Well, thank you. I appreciate it very much. Um, you know, one of, you know, it, it, it's, it's a strange world being a novelist, right? Because you're really writing, you're just making things up for a living. And, uh, and you're thinking, how, does, how, how can I persuade someone to part with $28 and several days of their life, you know, for something that's completely made up? But the combination for me of, of writing, of telling stories, of entertaining, but also educating, if I entertain well, then I have the opportunity to sort of also teach people what's happening in this part of the world. But that combo of that plus really being able to make it, uh, some small difference, uh, it's very satisfying. And I can't believe um, God and my readers let me do it. So uh, thank you for showing any interest at all. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been international bestseller Joel Rosenberg. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.